as you venture west of Birmingham in the Ladywood district, you may find one of the city's hidden gems, the Edge Baston Reservoir. In this natural reserve stands a derelict building covered in graffiti, once known as the Tower Ballroom. Before its closure in 2017, this venue has seen 141 years of music, dance, cuisine, sports and romance played out in the most exuberant manner and forging the tower in the hearts of Bromies throughout the generations. The current plan coveted by the council is to demolish this beloved building and turn it into housing, a controversial idea for the natural reserve and a piece of local heritage. Following the production of two films celebrating its past and at times imagined future, this podcast aims to focus on the present and ponders the question, what spaces do we really want? In this episode, we met three friends and artists closely connected to the projects around the tower. Gavin, Simeon and Tom reflect and question the idea of community, the balance of power within the city, gentrification and capitalism. Interviewed by Leita Turina and Jessica Samba. Our first guest, Gavin Rogers, is a visual artist, tutor and professor who has led several projects with Burt Associates and contributed to the birth of the Tower Ballroom campaign. How did you first get involved with the Tower Ballroom? So, from what I can remember, this story began when Iris and I met on a park bench about three or four years ago. We just started imagining what this space could be mm-hmm. and what it was in the past and just started having conversations. Some of them were based on things that, that did happen. Some of them were based on things that I guess we imagined might have happened there. And others were, I guess the most important thing is we just started saying, what could this actually be if mm-hmm. it was reopened or changed or turned into an asset for local people um, because it always was something that a lot of local people were engaged with and like really have connections with and are proud of as a venue we started sort of dreaming I guess and then from that we just continued to meet up at the reservoir and have conversations about all sorts of things in the neighborhood but the tower ballroom was the thing we always used to come back to Mm -hmm. because it was on our walk you know it was a thing on our walk that momentarily disrupted us and made us question and to think um, what actually is the reservoir and who is it for and why is it important for the city. Had you heard of the Tower beforehand? Um, yeah, so I, I know the Tower Ballroom from when I was a kid. So even though I was from Burton-on-Trent, which is you know 30 miles away, mm-hmm. um, there would be families that would have big weddings and functions at the tower ballroom Mm. so I already knew what the tower ballroom was and then I went to a night there many many years ago when it was probably student days when I visited Birmingham Um, I don't have much of a recollection of it but (laughs) because I think I'd had too much beer but um yeah I don't and then I what everything else I know about it is from what people have said about it and Mm. and their experiences of it but yeah, it was it was known in the region, not just in Birmingham. There would have, you know, people from Tamworth, Litchfield, Burton, Worcester, they would know Tower Ballroom because it was a place where people came to go to gigs and to dance and that kind of stuff. What interested you about the tower that you would have multiple conversations about it? What was it? Was it the community aspect? 
was it the fact that it was so it involved so many people and it was so culturally and generationally diverse what interested you about the tower for me i think it was the one the location it being in an actual neighborhood it also being a place where I could go and have a dance because actually I don't feel comfortable going into town, going to pubs. They can feel quite, I don't know, I'm just not, I'm not a big fan of Broad Street and the venues that we have in the city centre. And I remember growing up around social clubs in like Derbyshire, mining towns like Claycross and my family are from like Northeast Derbyshire. And it sort of had a bit of that vibe about it. But at the same time, it was also very Birmingham from what the conversations I was having, which means that it was really multicultural in the, in its latter years, like from the like 1980s onwards. And it was a venue that was more accepting and, and more diverse. So in some ways it had that spirit of like the working people's clubs. But the scale of a giant dance hall, like Wigan Dance Hall or, or giant Northern Soul venues, but then it was also kind of quite open and accessible in terms of culture, um, particularly in its latter years when it became like venues for weddings and festivals yeah. and and dance organizations and stuff so it kind of like brought lots of different people together yeah and I think another thing that's really important about it is is it wasn't this fancy you know art center that was run by art people as well which Mm -hmm. can can also in it sometimes be problematic in the arts you know I, I really like um the icon gallery in Mac and these these places but if you want to just hire a space or borrow something or have it for the afternoon to do a party or a dance it's they're actually quite inaccessible whereas the tower ballroom yes it was privately managed although council owned you could just spend 100 quid to hire it out yeah. and you could have your party or your family event or um, a competition or a boxing match so there's something kind of quite empowering about that that you can get this big space and the community can do whatever they they want in it well that's what i i see now maybe that's what i dream about it as well like it's mm-hmm. this potential of a space which anybody can use um, for either free or next to nothing that they can then turn into their event and make it their own and for them to have power over that event and to to organize it and and it not just being not us not just being customers of the arts and mm-hmm. oh we must go and see that thing that's been programmed by a public arts organization it being something where oh no do you know what we could get together and do this together which I think is why the Tower Ballroom has probably had such great audiences. The roller skaters are an example of that. So Skate Brum, as they call themselves now, they did their weekly roller skating events there. So they would have hired it, you know, relatively cheap. They would charge a small fee for people to come in. And then it was, they were owning that event and the community had ownership over it. And it became a place for them to be together and to enjoy skating in Birmingham. And there's not many places like that which allow that model to happen so do you obviously you you weren't happy about it but what do you feel when you heard that it was being closed down and turned into commercial housing wow well there's lots of lots of feelings my initial gut feeling was kind of sadness that our city well not our city not necessarily our city but the organizations within our city the authorities don't see how amazing this could be or the potential in it and all they're seeing it is a bit of land that can make a quick profit and not thinking about the long-term profits of the, that site by the reservoir, the Tower Ballroom. Let's just think about a simple example. Um, so like dancing is something that I think we're all meant to be doing. For thousands of years, our ancestors have danced, okay? 
And it's something that a lot of us don't actually do because we're too busy working, we're too busy sorting stuff out on computers and mobile phones and to actually come together as a big group and dance is seems like quite a rare thing it shouldn't be but it kind of is for some people for a lot of people it became a venue for dancing and more people were engaged in it then it could actually help people's bodies they'd mm-hmm. be more healthy it could help their minds they would have better uh, mental health arguably and then that would actually save the local authorities money it would save yeah. the nhs money it would save potentially lives. Let's let's be really blunt about this here. For me, it's showing that there's actually loads of long-term benefits to this as well. So you've talked a lot about the potential that the tower had. What would you do with that space if you had like, you know, unlimited amounts of money and the council weren't, you know, breathing down your neck? What would you do with it? I think my gut feeling is following the legacy of what it what it was, which was a dance hall. Um I would want it to be a place to, for dancing. Now, what that means in the context of the future and what that could look like, it might be very different to what it looked like previously, which then sort of makes me think that what my actual dream would be, it would become like a centre for us to be ourselves, mm-hmm. for our bodies to be our bodies and for us to celebrate that. And that might sound a bit conceptual, but it, I think it's quite simple. It's a place for like minds and bodies to be happy and healthy. And I do think that that is underrated or not explored enough at the moment. And I do also think that it's going to be a future trend. So also, if you do this now, we could become a pioneer of something. And one thing I will say about Birmingham, which I love, by the way, it often is like, I wouldn't say it's a trendsetter. It's often Mm -hmm. chasing in terms of like um, civic projects. We'll get that building five years after every other place has got that building mm-hmm. or we'll get that project or that um it sometimes feels like it's the city that is chasing the other cities so why not become a pioneer of something if we think about the wider context of this we're heading towards potentially climate catastrophe mm-hmm. like if we don't do something about that so what can we do on this site which becomes an example to the rest of the country to the world to show what this site could be to help with our bodies and our minds and climate. So things like we shouldn't be using as much material. We, sh- we actually shouldn't be going out buying loads of things all the time. And that's what our economy runs on. Mm-hmm. Our economy runs on the fact that we all go to Bullwing shop, the Bullwing shopping centre in town and buy stuff. Um, but that stuff is a waste of material. It's a waste of energy. It's a waste of... But what if the place that we went to was a place where we could just be ourselves and our bodies could be our bodies and we could dance? And that becomes the, the centre of our society the center of our economy the center of our being if that makes sense i'm not saying that we're all going to be carving spoons by the reservoir (laughs) and we're all going to be worshiping the stars and the moon again which our ancestors probably did thousands of years ago but it's moving towards something that's that's simpler and about us being healthier more civic and not needing to have all those um services like if we think about mental health services, the reason that we need them is because we've got mental health problems in the first place. What can we do to prevent those mental the mental health crisis? Mm-hmm. And having a centre where you can go if you're not feeling well that day or somewhere you can go to be around family, friends, to, to dance, to be together, to, to make art, to make music, whatever, to sing, might actually help prevent that in the first place. Um, so I just see, I see it as a, it could be some kind of civic centre where people can come together and celebrate themselves and their bodies and feel like they're they're welcome 
Um, and I think Birmingham is a great city for that because we have such a liberal city, diverse population, but also there's lots of, still lots of problems. And this might help solve some of those things mm-hmm. as well. Bringing together different, different religions, different cultures, different um, sexualities, different genders, like, and exploring that together. And, and the focus of that being, how can we all be healthy and happy and better and more environmentally friendly let people come and visit Birmingham because they want to experience that mm-hmm. not because they want to buy a pair of trainers at the bowling shopping center mm-hmm. which is quite sad actually if that's the reason people come to Birmingham that's what our economy is wanting people to yeah to do I know that's really redacted but that's kind of the essence of what capitalism is so am I saying that I want it to be a trigger to end capitalism? I don't know, but it's it's. Uh, I just want it to be a place for people. Why do you think there aren't that many places? I know you've touched on people like consumerism and things like that, but why do you think that we've lost so many spaces that are for the community and just for people to like come and enjoy themselves without having to purchase things? That's a really, really good question. I think it's decades of a movement of capital away from public spaces and public projects and public land into private companies. And I, I can't reel off the facts and figures and from councils and economists right now, but the most valuable asset we have in cities is, I think, is people and public land. And they seem to be the two things that rapidly are becoming sold off or organised in a way which keeps people in certain spaces mm-hmm. and and prevents them from entering other spaces. Public land is so important. And the problem is once you've sold it off, you can never get the value back out of it. You just get whatever rent those private companies are paying back. Or once you've sold it, you get your quick profit. But the long-term impact, for instance, the Smithfield site in Birmingham or the Tower Ballroom, they're publicly owned and they'll probably be sold off to make flats and make a quick buck. But if they became parks that would have add so much value to people's lives and actually technically value to other assets in the city if we had a central park for instance and keeping it public it's going to be worth so much more in the future mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's a direct consequence of our government our current government perhaps the previous administration a bit as well who've just continually started to privatize and sell stuff off and the moment that like youth services and the health service and mental health provision and sexual health provision are sold off to private companies or managed by private companies or charities as they call themselves but often there's still a profit structure within that the services are less accountable and although they might seem better on the face of it over time they could become a lot worse because their money is the priority not the actual people or the products or or whatever you want to say is being provided for the service So we've been talking a lot about the problems that capitalism has caused, like communities and community spaces. But do you think there's any solutions to that, like from the government side of things? Do you think that there's anything that they should be doing, that they could be doing that they're not? I don't don't know if I can answer all of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the, the, the issue with local government is that they're so under pressure financially that they're just trying to do the best that they can, you know, actually. And I'm not going to moan about civil servants here like I'm, I'm working at the university I'm, I'm kind of one of them they're trying to do the best that they can but when you the titanic starts sinking there's only so many holes that you can hold on to to stop it sinking I think the the solution and this might be I think a lot of people are talking about this at the moment is finding a way of self-governance at a local level which is something our government talks about mm-hmm. and our local authorities talk about but to put that into action is quite hard 
And that's when local people get together, they have forums, they have councils, and they, they actually start to have control over the way that the money's being spent and things are happening. That's not going to happen overnight either. For instance, council tax comes from everyone in the city and then it's decided centrally where that is spent. If you had something that was a local council tax that was then spent very locally, that's a, a chance for people to start to choose where that's being spent. But even within that, you get your own, you get structures and the people that end up managing that locally are the ones that have spare time. And the ones that have spare time arguably could be people that are more privileged or not necessarily privileged, but like they have more spare time. So it means they're not having to work or, you know, raise loads, six kids or like mm -hmm. have lots of stuff going on in their lives. Um, so it's it's finding mechanisms to allow as many people as possible to be involved in that that very local governance. If there was a everyone in B sixteen paid twenty pounds per year, for instance, and that then meant they could have the tower ballroom, and that meant that the tower ballroom could stay open and it would run, and events would be cheap or accessible. But the problem with saying stuff like that is because then that gives <laughs> gives the wrong idea sometimes, and people get confused what that actually means. What I'm talking about is on a grassroots level, us collectively sharing the responsibility of looking after what we've got and taking that power away from the government. So in the end, if everyone does that, which could take decades, the government itself renders itself redundant because they're no longer involved in anything other than, you know, so far removed from what's actually happening, which arguably they do anyway. For instance, so many people at the council used to be employed within the arts team and also employed within the cycling and environmental provision and those staff jobs have just disappeared and there's been redundancies and maybe there was 15 people working in the as arts officers and now there's only three that's a problem because there's less people to administrate stuff but it i guess if then the people doing that become the people in the community it starts to like kind of give power back to the community but the difficulty is that the money's gone <laughs> well it's got i say it's gone it's still there and this is how capitalism works money doesn't actually go it just moves around and that's how people get rich you get rich for moving money by the way if, if anyone wants any tips for today on how to get rich and move money around that's how you get rich um so how, how can you disrupt that to allow that money to come directly to the people that need it and the organizations that need it and for those grassroots organizations to have a not just a bigger share of money but a bigger share of space and time and public land and public assets because that's actually what a lot of people want if you speak to lots of grassroots organizations they're like actually we just we want a room with a mirror that we can all do vogue classes in or something like that this is what they, they want it's not like we want all want to be paid fifty thousand pounds a year to be administrators of this mm -hmm. they, they just want space and access and time and for people to respect that and empower them and make them feel like they're part of that system and is yeah. that why you think the power had so much potential it allowed people space to do things like yeah, that? Yeah, although it was this, again, privately managed and council owned, because it was a bit, I, I mean, I don't know, actually, this is a lot of hearsay here, but mm -hmm. I think it was a little bit of like, there's a bit of cash here and a bit of cash there and you pay this and you hire that. And that actually enabled people because you just have to get that little bit of money together and you can you can make something happen. Because it's, it's getting it away from the, the hands of lots of administration which I, I admit is there for a reason. It's there for, you know, supposedly transparent and accountable. But in that process, it also wastes quite a lot of money as well. Do you have any examples of spaces that do that kind of work? And what do you think they need so that they can, so they can do that on a bigger scale? 
I do have an example of a, a, a pilot project. I think it was four years long. Mm-hmm. It was called Mansions of the Future in Lincoln. It was a building that got disused and then someone put this idea together that this building would be taken over by a contemporary arts organisation, but they were really into social practice, actually. What they did is over four years or so, and you should check out their Mansions of the Future online, they ran 60 to 80, I think it was like 70, 80 community takeovers of that building. So they would work with communities around Lincoln and say, you can have this building, what do you want to do with it? You've got it for two weeks. And they mm. would help facilitate it. It was funded and it was generously funded by the Arts Council and a number of organisations. But through that, people then started seeing this building as like part of their life. They'd get to the supermarket to get their food and then they'd go to mansions of the future to meet their friends, to have food, to do stuff. So I think there are models out there and thinking about the way that we use public spaces used in the Netherlands and Germany and Central European countries, I think are really interesting. They do seem to value public space and public land because they see the benefits of parks and the benefits of green spaces in the wider context of the city. Whereas here, because land ownership is so monolithic, it's like <laughs> we've all got these bits of paperwork that say you own this little bit of land and thou must not slaughter a pig at the bottom of the garden and and all these things that appear on your deeds to your house. And I think the problem with this is that land is so bitty in cities in the UK because it's based on this Victorian model of of ownership and power and wealth Mm. and it's owned by very few people. You know, like in London, the Duke of Westminster owns, what is it, a quarter of the city or something? Like, like, in terms of the leasehold. That doesn't enable these big projects to happen sometimes because you've got all this complicated land ownership. And whereas in some of those Central European countries, there are bigger bits of land and that that's come out of all sorts of complicated historical pasts, which I'm not going to go into too much. They're now being used in really interesting ways. You know, let's think about the Berlin Wall, which has gone down. That That's now used bits of it are parts and public spaces. And that's used to help a nation with the trauma of dealing with the previous wars. Birmingham has also gone through a lot of trauma. And the UK has gone through a lot of trauma. And it's not just the UK, it's all those countries that are attached to the Commonwealth. have gone through so much trauma. It's now a right that these bits of land in Birmingham city centre are given back to these people to get some sense of justice for effectively being oppressed and many people are still oppressed to this present day and that's why public land is really important because it's an opportunity to give that space back over to those people that have been oppressed or a part of the system that the wrong end of the system that's oppressing them and allowing them to get some ownership back over who they are as people because otherwise there's injustice there isn't there people won't get themselves or their bodies back because ultimately they're being they're ultimately owned or controlled by something else even if that is the fact that we all feel pressured to go out and buy a house and a car and you know that old thing you buy a car to go to work to pay for the car that you bought to go to work in back to capitalism again that system is what's been given it to us so why not decide on a grassroots level that's not what we want and let's start growing vegetables for each other (laughs) you know let's start looking after each other let's start running social events and dancing together I do think that the only way we can have a revolution is if we all just start dancing because the government will have no idea what to do. <laughs> They'll be like, oh my God, what's happening? How do we stop this? They'll try to stop us dancing, but they can't. We won't fall dancing on our own, to quote a Robin lyric.
Our next guest, Simeon Stribbenayf, is a doctoral researcher and focusing on youth inclusion in urban planning at Birmingham City University and founder of Urban Imaginarium and Engagement Practice. We wanted to ask, just first of all, how you first got involved with the tower, like how you first heard of it. I live in Birmingham, but I don't live nearby the reservoir. So I have been to the reservoir several times, therefore, you know, I've seen the tower ballroom. Mm -hmm. But I wasn't really aware of the story. So the first time when I got involved or kind of became aware of what the tower ballroom is, was around the Dreaming Tower Ballroom project and Mm -hmm. actually understanding that there was this building nearby the reservoir, which was being disused. um, And there was a campaign to save it. And obviously, as somebody interested in buildings, I thought, great. So what is the work you've done? I remember earlier in lockdown, I think Gavin emailed me saying there is this project trying to save this building and there's this master plan going on. So I think I joined a Zoom meeting about it and I kind of started to familiarise myself with the documents and I was really impressed by the fact that there wasn't just a tower ballroom but there was also, there had been a campaign around the Oslo Street Park and things around the reservoir generally trying to counteract that narrative which the council was putting out so I thought that was really interesting and then when the new consultation came about kind of helped collect some views from people around the, the tower and also wrote my own sort of consultation letter to the planners just to try and give a different perspective but also use my knowledge of town planning to maybe add a bit more meat to the bone of what people were actually expressing in terms of concerns. We've talked to you before and I remember you saying something about how the consultations weren't with the people that would usually use the tower. Like they were middle class people and not necessarily the people who live around the reservoir. Right, yes. So I think one of the biggest surprises to me was that there there had been a big pushback in the first consultation and then obviously the council has tried to establish a consultation body. But I think it was representatives of the clubs around and it looked to me as largely middle class, largely white populations that mm. use the reservoir, not necessarily the tower ballroom, yeah. but use the reservoir in a structured manner. So, you know, the Cadets Academy, the canoeing club and things like mm. that. So I think, you know, for all the informal uses of the reservoir and the tower ballroom, there wasn't a channel or there wasn't any sort of recognition that also happens. Why do you think that they pushed out the other residents? They didn't choose their ideas as well. They just went for the middle class people instead. I would question if they went for the middle class people. Even those people's consultation probably was reflected to such a degree. I think the Tower Ballroom site and the sites around were being identified as housing development sites in the Birmingham allocation. But maybe without that granular understanding of what's actually happening on the site. So I think the allocation of that site as a potential housing development happened so far back that nobody really would have been asked. So even those ideas of of people, you know, the cadet club, so I think the cadet club actually had a big issue with the first proposal because they were supposed to move as well. So I think the problem became so far down the line, you know, maybe in 2010 or way five or whatever, whenever they were allocating those sites. And I think if we talk about the middle class sort of or the class struggle, I would say that's probably the planners and the councillors who are actually taking those decisions because ultimately that's where probably that understanding of who actually uses the reservoir did not appear because of lack of 
interaction or because of the social kind of status of those planners. So I think it's not as simple as, you know, working middle class, but I do think overwhelmingly the planners would have taken that decision, would have seen on paper a site that actually makes sense mm -hmm. um, if you just look at it on a map without actually thinking that there's people living there and, you know, really understanding the, the sort of the tensions it's going to create. So why do you think that the council chose to close the tower and turn it into a commercial housing? I think... With the benefit of the doubt, I would say probably mismanagement um, would have been one of the main issues. Definitely, from what I've heard around the later years of the Tower Ballroom as an operational sort of nightclub, were not very good in terms of how it was managed and then how then maybe the council was also sort of monitoring that management. The nefarious sort of underbelly of that might be that there are some development interests, whether mm. from people in the council, associated with the council, or, you know, people who want to develop that side. I think also there is an issue of care. I don't think anybody in that process cared to actually understand what maybe the cultural significance of that building would have been. And I think also there is a lot of circumstance. I do think it's been quite unfortunate that just when this was kicking off, the pandemic happened and I also mm -hmm. think you know issues of the building itself having asbestos and things like that would have not helped the case so there is a lot of circumstance there as well so I think all of these things compounded but to me the biggest one would have been of care I don't think anybody really understood or cared to understand in that process that there are people who actually associate a lot of positive emotions with that building and with that area and would like to see that being used for similar purposes in the future. We hear that the tower is going to be turned into houses. Do you know what kind of housing that will be? I think that's a good question because I think that's the contentious bit of the master plan. And I think maybe here is good to kind of think a bit from the perspective of, of the council as well. You know, there's an, and a lot of pressure to provide housing and this site was owned by them. So they would have allocated it as a housing site or housing development site years before this consultation for that document would have come up. The issue is that regardless of what type of housing you put right next to a natural reserve, which is unique within Birmingham, the value of that housing would immediately change and it immediately, you know, rock it up. Because even if you put affordable or social housing there, it is a very attractive place to live. It is on the edge of a reservoir, of a big open blue space next to a, nat a natural reserve, green park, very easy access to the city centre. It is interesting to think that Regardless of what we put there, you know, those market forces will take over and it will eventually, unless you put some really good safeguards, those apartments and those houses are going to become high value houses because they'll be new, they'll be attractive for people to move into. And I think this is where people have started to question that development because of the massing that was proposed in the second consultation looked to be too close to the water's edge, quite dense, but dense towards the reservoir and, you know, kind of opening up some sort of green space to the other side. So even though the principle of development has been set, so this site will probably become housing, there are a lot of other policies that the council could do to restrict the fact that these flats need to be used by local communities or the, you know, or the massing could change. So actually it becomes more sympathetic to the reservoir. So there is a lot within the council's power in that supplementary planning document to be able to really understand who is going to move in that area. And I think if if not, it will become luxury housing because it would be a very attractive area for people to move into, you know, who wouldn't want to live looking over 
a reservoir in Birmingham where there isn't anything like it and considering the sort of the consistent rise in house prices in Birmingham regardless. So I think the housing as at the moment is proposed is just numbers and density but the proposals which are emerging in terms of visuals on that supplementary plan document would signal to developers, would signal to people who would want to develop that site that this is possible, that you can put that much housing next to the reservoir which obviously if I'm a developer I would want to put more <laughs> you know I would want to do more and I'll even push that further so there are no restrictions in terms of that housing development in the in the SPD which could be introduced you know you could have a height restriction could have a different set of uh, offset from the reservoir's edge and things like that the site is council owned and you know the council does have Midlands Heart which is a council owned property company that could also be something about the procurement later on and who actually develops that site so it doesn't become private property but it retains and stays with the council so it becomes you know stays public ownership in that sense but that would mean that some interests might be hurt and i think that might not be suitable might not be what actually the site has been primed for in in sort of local politics terms what problems do you think luxury housing could bring I think, again, I'll go back. Luxury housing in this area, or housing in this area, it will be new. In that specific site, the housing will be new next to the reservoir. It will attract people who are more affluent. It wouldn't necessarily become luxury just by the design. Mm. It would attract that type of population, though, which in this area means that you would have people, you know, buying flats for £400,000 right next to people whose houses cost 180 or whatever you know that stratification of sort of the population that's going to live there is certainly going to become so much more apparent and you would introduce a community of people who would have financial independence or financial means to push out or push for services and ideas that they would want in that area so you know we can imagine then it would quickly start rising prices of housing around it also maybe displace some people and i think that's not just on the tower ballroom side i'm talking about the fact that there's already the development at the bottom of the reservoir and urban splash sport loop so this whole area is going to start changing which would push out people who already live there anyway and i think on on a point of view of access to the reservoir it is immediately next to the main access point and that might become more privatized so it might become less welcoming for people coming from across the region or from across the city like i would do because you would ultimately be going through private property the way that it's sort of presented right now i mean mm-hmm. obviously that could change in the next master plan or it could change in whoever develops the actual plot but as it was presented it left quite a lot of questions because that passive overlooking of the reservoir by those flats it would be very much sensed by everybody using the reservoir where do they expect the local people to go then if they turn it private and then all of a sudden they just can't access the reservoir anymore do they not care at all i don't think people would not be able to access the reservoir but they might not be willing to access the reservoir or it might be that houses around the reservoir change ownership and you know it's an asset in birmingham which is really underutilized a lot of people do not know that this exists there any type of development there would put that on the map so to say in terms of property and real estate uh, agents so you will see a lot more interest not just in the new development but you will see a lot more interest in the existing properties there as well so you wouldn't be that people would not be able to access the reservoir, but the community around it, which is quite a well-established community right now, would slowly start being eroded because of the prices, because of the fact that the next time you want to move or, you know, you see your house price has jumped quite a lot, you will probably sell that off, which is fine if it's just 
subscribe to sort of market economics, but maybe not as much if you think about from the point of view that it's a nature reserve and people, you know, have developed a lot of social connections there. And also it's a generally a community, you know, people who do not have a lot of financial means. So yeah, the alternative is that they would get pushed out further away into different areas of Birmingham, which means that their access to the city centre and other services would, would have to change. So will it almost become a thing where it's very difficult for, let's say, working class people to live in major cities now? For example, it's quite hard to live in London. And then would that start happening in like Birmingham, Manchester and other cities as well? I think it's already happening in Birmingham. I think it would happen much quicker in an area which has access to such, you know, it's one thing being around a park somewhere in Birmingham. We have quite a lot of parks, but we don't have that many reservoirs. So I think the moment you open that up, it would be very hard to stop that displacement process, which I think is already started anyway, but maybe it's not as quick as, as it would if you put some catalysts of buildings around, which pretty much will happen anyway. And this is, I think, is quite important to think about the Tower Ballroom site as almost an anchor rather than another development opportunity, because you see around anything sort of northeast of the reservoir will become developed, is becoming developed. So this site has a prime location that could actually mix those two new communities, the old and the new community, instead of being part of the new and then push out the old even further out. So what do you think the future of Ladywood and the city of Birmingham is going to look like? I mean, Birmingham is unique in the sense that it has a lot of development land compared to some other major cities. So in that sense, it might not be as obvious, but it is becoming more and more saturated with a specific type of development. So I think the future of Ladywood, you can see, I mean, the flats next to the hospital, the flats next to the, to the reservoir, you will see a lot more integration of the type of communities that would traditionally live in some of the sort of commuter neighbourhoods in London or like the commuter boroughs in London that go work in the sea centre. So I can imagine it would be developments catering to, to kind of professionals and not necessarily working class in that sense. I also think it would be much slower process in some cases because actually the infrastructure in Birmingham is quite bad in some cases. So there would be a lot of tensions in that sense because mm. you would have new developments, but then, you know, with quite poor bus service or with quite poor parking provisions or whatever you know public transport is not that great to come to the reservoir so um there will be a lot of tension i can imagine in terms of physical interpretation i can imagine it's just gonna be denser i do not think that birmingham is very serious about their climate policies at the moment so i can't imagine that any of those new developments will be innovative i think it'll be kind mm. of quite a copy paste so it'll be very much what digbeth has been becoming at the moment i also think it would become quite down the line, there will be a big shift of the population because if we are serious to actually get those people in, Digbeth is all getting developed. You know, a lot of things are being developed at the same time, but they're all the same type. They're all one, two bed flats. So the family element is just not going to feature as much. And that's why I was talking about the housing. The housing is actually going to become very attractive because a housing of three bedrooms is, is going to become quite rare, I think, in, especially in the inner city centre and the, inside the ring road. That's interesting because I've never really thought about actual houses. So would that just be somewhere you'd have to live in the outskirts to go look for houses now? They're pretty much just building one or two bedroom apartments now. Well, it will become the London model in that sense of, you know, you meet somebody, you have a baby and you have to move out somewhere hour away because there's no provision of housing for you to live with a young family. Or, or conversely, in Birmingham, you know, you have a family of six or seven because you just culturally live intergenerationally 
and suddenly you put with the dilemma of do I leave my grandparents or my parents somewhere else and go live by myself somewhere because I'm close to work I'm close to all my friends and all that sort of stuff but actually that's not how you want to live maybe because that's not what you've been grown up and you know what you've been raised up to do who has the power to decide what type of housing is built and who gets to question the master plans so in terms of power, a lot of those decisions have been taken before the community actually really got a whiff of it. And I think this is the key question that within Birmingham, as the largest local authority in the UK, the planning department is quite a hierarchical structure. And I can imagine a lot of decisions are being taken in a quite a rushed manner because Birmingham itself is just a vast area. So... When we talk about the housing allocation, this would have been a decision that had been taken like probably 10, 12 years ago or whenever it came out, which would have been based on ownership and the size, nothing more than that. So even at that point, that decision has been locked in. And I think at that point, it would have been, I would say, professional responsibility for people within the planning department to actually do something about it. The councillors locally would have had a role to play as well because they'll have to adopt all of these documents. And the local plan which came in 2017 to 2031 also has said that in. So in that consultation as well, there would have been an opportunity to question these allocations and for councillors to question those as representatives. Mm -hmm. But they would have had to know that this is going to cause issues. And I think this is where we come back to the idea of, of care. And I think there isn't enough care for somebody to go out as a counsellor and actually ask those mm. questions. And there isn't enough knowledge from communities to understand that this process is going on. So now we get to a supplementary planning document, which could change something on a very local specific level. But that mainly is to do with the reservoir. And I think really maybe not shouting about the value of what you actually have there has also not put that on the map for politicians, for representatives, which then means that the professionals haven't had enough pressure to understand that this is actually going to cause some trouble or is not the best decision. But I do think a lot of it is to do with resourcing as well in the sense of how those departments work. You know, there's not that many people that work there and there's not that many hours that are being dedicated to every single site to be analysed what the actual community issues might be. They own the site. It's a big site. They can build something there close to the city centre. Great. Not necessarily thinking about the social dimension. And I think that's a big flaw generally within the planning system that the social side doesn't necessarily take precedent or is considered at all. But at the moment, who can actually take power is the people that live around. There are alternative modes of doing it. You know, we could also use the localism act and set up a neighborhood forum and actually decide, you know, we really want to do this and our ward and actually develop our own plan and set restrictions working with the local plan. You could raise money, buy the property, buy the site and develop it yourself. You could also just put pressure generally, you know, as we've done in this consultation round to actually change some basic decisions within the master plan, which could then influence the developer's proposals mm -hmm. because obviously ultimately somebody's going to come in and develop their own vision which might be very different to what is in the master plan but they would have to work within some boundaries that the master plan sets and that's the problem the master plan does not have tangible boundaries when you were talking about there isn't an aspect of care or city planning doesn't look into the social aspect how can that change like how can that be changed I think that's a systemic issue, but I also think that there isn't just lack of care from the council. I think there is a lack of care of individuals as well. I think there's just predominantly lack of care about the things that we have and want to preserve. And I think projects like this would need to just be much more prominent. And I, for me, that's really interesting to be to be as, an, as a case study of how you can actually 
make people care because I think it's actually shown that people do care. But how do you capture that and how do you continuously reinforce it? It won't be the politician or the planner's role, I think, to a degree. How do we get this information out to the local people? Because when we did these street interviews, a lot of people were still not aware of what was going on. So what's the best way to be able to get people to find out more? It's a great question because I think this is the whole planning system struggling with. You know, planning notifications are usually just a piece of paper on a lamppost. And then if you see it, you see it. Or if you get the letter in your your letterbox, then you respond. The answer the government is going to give you is digital. I don't think that's necessarily the answer. I think it needs to be localized networks of information sharing that exist already, but that need to probably understand a bit more about the fact that your built environment is not just shaped by somebody somewhere, but also shaped by you as an individual as well. And you do have the power to find that information. And that information is usually publicly available, even though if it's a bit written in the planning language and it's a bit like you have to go through like 10 different web pages to find it. But Birmingham, for example, has a really good digital map where you can actually go and find planning applications. But to me, it's a bigger issue of sort of citizenship and how we actually think about the built environment generally. I don't think people, even who manage properties, consider that this is something that they have power over or they have agency to change. So I think being more aware of what's going on in your area means that you also need to care about your area and actually really engage with what is happening there. So it's it's a non-answer because I think it's a much bigger systemic issue. But I do think it's very easy just to say, oh, this was published somewhere and I couldn't find it. But it's much harder to think, no, I actually have ownership of this because it's my city, it's my area, it's my neighborhood. And I should be aware or at least a percentage of the community should be thinking of the people who live there not to wait until a conflict comes in but also be a bit more proactive in that sense and that thing i think should be going two way i think planners are not very good at actually proactively distributing that information either and you know just not being on site you don't know who your local planner is you don't know who actually deals with that and that there should be more visibility about this as well Our last guest, Tom Jones, is a local resident and reservoir enthusiast and an activist against the council's patronising attitude. I wanted to ask what work you do around the tower and how you started doing that. I've got no personal memories of the tower at all. In fact, I don't think I've ever been inside. But I became aware of the whole issue around the tower when I moved into this area about 25 years ago now. And one of the first things that, as a local resident, came up is that the council wanted to pull the tower ballroom down and build, I think, either a block of colossal development of some form or I think it may have been a hotel I can't remember but clearly this is going to be a major disruption to what I'd already understood and seen and experienced was something really quite special and that's Edgebaston Reservoir. There was a lot of local fuss about it at the time and eventually the program was dropped maybe because somebody ran out of money 
realistically speaking, mm -hmm. rather than any ideological or belief that somehow this was a flawed idea. And then it went quiet and nothing happened until fairly recently, a few years ago, Council comes back with a plan to develop, in inverted commas, the Tower Ballroom site. My main concern about this is that it's a thin end of a wedge. The reservoir is an extraordinary area. It's a local nature reserve. It is not a park. It's not a manicured place with clipped trees and cut grass and whatever. It's a semi-wild within a mile of the city centre of Birmingham. It's quite extraordinary. And that really does need to be looked after. Once you start doing something on the edge of the reservoir, even if it's a tiny little bit around the Tower Ballroom, you set a precedent. Things will go downhill from then onwards. There's no doubt about it. If development takes place on the Tower Ballroom site, there'll be noise, 24-7 activity, light pollution. The birds will be scared off. Those birds that value quietness and resist any form of noise or interruption will disappear. The visiting birds will go. Gradually, the whole thing will dissolve. It'll lose its nature reserve status. The council will probably move in and tidy it up. And before we know where we are, we've lost something incredibly important. Mm -hmm. So the Tower Ballroom is the, the flashpoint. And what happens on that site is absolutely crucial. I, as a local resident, am really keen that what should happen on that site is consistent with and appropriate to the area and where it is. What have you been doing to essentially resist the council? I think it's mainly a matter of mobilising people. I think this is really important. I don't personally have any views about what ought to go on that site, except I know damn well what shouldn't go on that site. What should go on the site, I think, has to be a consensus in some way or other, and we have to find a mechanism for doing this, of local people, users, people who value the reservoir, people who come from near and far, so it's not just immediately local people, it's the people who value the reservoir, what they feel they want for that, how it would be useful to them, what would actually improve the quality of their lives. So we need to mobilise people, their thinking, and to help them generate a collective solution in some way or other. Once they get rid of all these spaces, what do they expect the local people to go after that then? The council basically wants people to shut up and do what the council wants them to do. It's fascinating attending a ward committee meeting. The whole thing is to do with what the councillors feel and the council feel is right for local people. The notion of consultation, for example, is outrageous. It's basically the council saying, this is what we want to do. Oh, and what do you think of it, people? Oh, that's interesting. Well, we'll go ahead and do what we're going to do anyway. And that's consultation in their view. So the moment you raise any issue, it's, oh, we consulted on that. What they did was go through a false type of consultation, in effect, which ensures that they got the result that they wanted, which is to do what they wanted to do anyway, which in the case of the Tower Ballroom is sell it off to developers and turn it into a little bit of Brindley Place on sea. What kind of challenges have you faced? Is it that people don't know what's going to happen to the tower? Is it more of people feel like disillusioned that they can't do anything? What challenges have you faced in mobilising people? Oh, I'm sure it's a mixture of all those. It's a lot of not knowing. The council doesn't go out of its way 
to communicate what it's doing. It says it does. It holds events, but they're of a very limited nature. You have to go on to council websites to find out, and it's very complicated, and it's not at all easy to winkle out information. I think people tend to respond when they feel and know that there is a real challenge to their lives, their quality of life, the way they live on a daily basis. And when people realise this, then they respond. But if they don't, then there's always a feeling that someone else will deal with this. Mm -hmm. Someone else will motivate. Somebody else will get things going. And one of the ways I'm quite convinced, but then this may reflect my background, that creative activities in the widest sense a way of people realising these sorts of issues, sharing with each other ideas, but also coming together and in a creative way, registering who they are, what they're about, what they want, and what would ideally would suit them. And if this, this energy, this knowledge, this local understanding can be collected, brought together, then I think we've got the basis of what could happen on that site. Do you think it's on purpose that you know, information about what the council is doing is inaccessible to people? Or do you think it's just a lack of care, really? I think it's, to some extent, it is knowingly deliberate. To some extent, it's incompetence. To some extent, I think it's just by default. It's a glorious English mixture. Mm. <laughs> it's easy to cast the council as some sort of devilish body in some way. I don't think it is. And I think there are a lot of organisations, a lot of people involved with the council who feel very positively want to do the right thing but on the other hand there is a system or there are systems and people are bound up in those systems on numerous occasions we've asked for information and the system doesn't make it available and the person you're speaking to has to say that more or less well look it's not my fault I can't really do anything about it I've got to ask somebody else I've got to put that through the system in some way, or I've got to refer it to somebody else. There, there is a systematic failure rather than a personal failure, I mm. think. That's really problematic because nobody owns that system. You can always blame the system and it's somebody else's fault. So I just wanted to ask, the reservoir is a community space. What is your relationship to the reservoir? How do you use it? Because for me and my family, we used, especially during lockdown, we used to walk around there a lot because it was an open space where we could all run around and still talk. And it was a really calming environment, especially like on a Saturday morning, which is when we tend to use it. And even when I was younger, like in the summer, me and my brother used to go running there. So that's my connection to the reservoir. And I wanted to ask what your connection to it was and how you use it. Exactly the same. It's the connection of an individual simply walking around a quiet, peaceful space, enjoying the wildlife, enjoying the natural environment, the calm of the water. I think it's the same for everyone, whoever they are, whatever their backgrounds. And the key thing is that it's an individual experience. And I say key because this is where it comes back to the issue of the future of it. The systems that are set up at the moment have no way of measuring and collecting individual responses. The whole system is geared up towards collecting the views of representatives. And we, we have no representatives of the thousands of individuals. It's those individual voices in their huge numbers 
that really need to be heard mm -hmm. about the reservoir, about its future. Because the one thing they have in common is exactly as you've just said, it's that responding to it as an individual benefiting from the atmosphere, benefiting from the space, it contributing to a sense of individual well-being. And that's where the value lies. It's not to do with the community. That's a hateful phrase because it depersonalizes the whole thing. It makes it sound as though there is a big lump of something out there for which people do things, people in authority do things. Mm -hmm. It's not like that at all. And the, st the way we start using language in that sense actually contributes to that thinking. It bolsters it up in a way so that we have to keep coming back, coming back all the time to individuals, small group of individuals benefiting from the reservoir, responding to the reservoir. And it's how all those individuals collectively feel about its future that we ought to be trying to gauge, to work with, to collect, to put together and to build on. And how do you think that should be structured? How do you think we can give voices to individual people and not just the community as a whole? You can't give the voice to the community as a whole. Mm. It has to come from all the individuals. And it, it, it's hard work because it means sitting and listening. It means hearing what people say in their terms rather than asking them questions in the terms of people who've got plans to do something with the reservoir or the tower ballroom site. It needs getting into the mind of the people who actually benefit from and use the whole reservoir. There are ways of doing that. I firmly believe that creative activity is a way of doing that. Talking and listening to people, holding sessions where people can freely speak. So it's not a matter of asking questions, which then frame people's answers mm -hmm. to get the results you want in order to do what you want to do with a reservoir, whoever you are, but starting with people and then building up from that. Okay, you get a vast amount of information with a bit of luck, a vast range of different viewpoints, but they need to be distilled down in order to arrive at something which is going to be appropriate for most people in most ways. What are ways that we can be able to break the system down? Because it's definitely going to affect a lot of the projects going around, especially in Birmingham. You have to constantly question. You have to constantly be alert and not allow things to pass through on the nod. When you sense that this is happening, you have to shout out. You have to say, no, you've got that wrong. You're misunderstanding. You're misinterpreting. You're not listening. It can be irritating, but so be it. You have to do this because there are too many people just quietly not complaining. And if people don't complain, if people don't object, then other people go ahead and do what they want to do. Why do you think people don't complain? Oh, we don't like to be a nuisance, do we? We have this sort of, don't make a fuss, you know, just calm down, don't make a fuss. Mm. I mean, the, the one phrase that really gets under my skin is somebody who says, don't rock the boat. In other words, there's this nice little setup and things are going forward very comfortably. If you start objecting, it upsets all that. And so often you have to do this because it's all locked together in various ways. Mm -hmm. So that if we come right back to the tower ballroom, we know what's been happening. Conversations have already taken place with developers about how this could be developed, presented to the community. Is no, no, nothing's been sorted. Well, you know, 
One isn't an idiot. One knows fine well that things have been sorted. Tentatively, plans have been made, and that will all then be gradually put into operation, unless you stand up and say no, no, no. Why do you think it's taken so long to get to the point of telling people what's happening, or will it just be a thing where all of a sudden you just see scaffolding around the building, and then that's just it? Or do they think that people are just going to start protesting and trying to stop it? That's why they're trying to keep it a bit quiet. I think it's it's a matter of time. It does take time. I mean, we found, for example, with just pop-up sessions around the reservoir, just of the table and some plans and people talking, do you know what's happening? So somebody walking around the reservoir and a lot of people have said no or yes, I vaguely got some idea, but I wasn't quite clear. It's a lot of work involved and Certainly the council isn't prepared to do that. They feel if they hold one session for one day, demonstrate the plans, talk to people about what they're doing, hear a few comments, that's a consultation. They feel they've been talking to people and will claim that they have been. But the vast majority of those individuals walking around the reservoir are still unaware of what's happening. It just needs hard work talking to people, talking with people and listening to them. And I think that's one thing we found because we did a session when we talked to people around the reservoir and asked them if they knew what was going to happen to it. And lots of people were like, no, that can't be right when we told them that it was going to be turned into commercial housing. Lots of people were surprised, which I was surprised that they had no clue because they would be like, yeah, I walk around here all the time. And they were rightfully upset because they, they weren't told what was happening in their own community. We found that a lot, like even someone that used to frequent the tower a lot He had no idea what was going to happen to it. And I think that's just something that happens. There's not enough communication between what's happening in Birmingham as a whole and with the council and then the local people who actually use the reservoir. Like there's a disconnect. I think there's a disconnect and there's also a lot of misunderstanding. Birmingham desperately needs houses. We know that. It needs houses for people, houses that people can afford to live in. What it does not need is luxury apartments on top of commercial premises overlooking the reservoir. Once one starts objecting to that, then you find that the point of view gets subtly twisted round. So you don't want housing. (laughs) Yes, we do want housing, but we want the right housing for the right people. And what's being proposed is not that. Those apartments on the top of the commercial premises that they're proposing, and they are proposing, there's no doubt about it, will be buy to let. And they'll be buy to let to people who come and want a nice view of the reservoir, perhaps for a short period of time. There was even talk about it appealing to HS2 commuters, for example. It is not housing in the sense that Birmingham needs housing, but very easily an objection can be twisted round, say, so you don't want housing. You're against housing for people. No, that's not the case. It needs to be carefully, very carefully looked at and examined and understood in detail. And yes, no doubt, cafe on site would be valuable. But what else would come along with it? What would come along with it is a sense of private ownership. And I think that's one of the key issues. The whole point about the reservoir, and to do, it's to do with the history of the Tower Ballroom, is that whatever its legal ownership, there is a sense of public ownership. 
It belongs to the people who are using it. And that's the key factor that we need to hang on to in relation to the reservoir and the tower ballroom site. The future for both needs to be in terms of a sense of public ownership, that this is free, this is ours, it's available to us, and it's for us to use in the way that we feel we want to use, whoever the we are who respond to that space. for listening to this episode of amplifying voices don't hesitate to send us your reaction and comments either on instagram at birds associates or by email that is admin at birdsassociates.net a birds associates podcast produced by the children of the diaspora find out more on our website birdsassociates.net <laughs>